Hello, everyone. Welcome to Dr. Usher Ways In. I'm Dr. David Usher, the founder and president of Reform Medicine, a uh, beacon in the night uh, for healthcare costs. And we tackle uh, medical weight loss or obesity in ways that uh, have been ahead of the curve for the last 12 years since we founded in 2011. Our goal is to, mission is to help lower costs for patients and their employers as well as improve health through the treatment of pandemic, the true pandemic of obesity, which is uh, plaguing more and more of us all the time, including now our kids. So uh, today we are going to talk about 10 ways that docs, doctors sabotage their patients' weight loss efforts. Uh, I came across, I have been doing medical weight loss now for probably 18 years. And um, when I first got involved with uh, weight loss, it was pretty clear to me that um, a relatively low carbohydrate approach uh, seemed to be the thing that would make the most sense um, from the standpoint of so many diseases out there. And, and uh, so we've always kind of advocated a low carb uh, and sometimes, and very oftentimes ketogenic level of low carbohydrate diet. Uh, some people call that keto. And um, now keto is kind of a name that's all over the place. And uh, we'll, we can talk about that. But well, there, uh, there was an article that came out uh, recently in the, uh, let's call it a free publication of Family Practice News. And very often uh, some of these free publications are what, what we call, what we doctors call throwaway journals. Uh, they're kind of uh, full of what look like newspaper articles, but really they tend to be uh, things written from conferences or about things that um, authors tend to have uh, affiliations with drug companies and so forth. So there's, you always have to read them with a uh, an eye toward um, kind of sniffing out uh, what the bias is in the articles. But this one, uh, 10 ways docs <laughs> sabotage their patient's weight loss. Uh, caught my eye because um, in quickly skimming it, I would have to agree that uh, this is the kind of thing that happens uh, quite regularly in primary care offices. So I thought I would run through these 10 things and uh, just give some brief comments on them. I'm not going to read the whole article to you. Sorry, that gets incredibly boring, uh, even for me, the reader. So, But I will touch on uh, each of these points and then uh, highlight the ones that I think are particularly uh, important uh, from my experience uh, doing medical weight loss uh, very successfully for the past 18 years. So here we go. Then uh, this is not in any particular order uh, of importance from my standpoint. The author didn't indicate any uh, order either, really. So he's just got 10 listed. Uh, but listed as number one is just not having an office that is uh, comfortable for people who are... Um, suffering from overweight or obesity uh, to come in and uh, sit down. Um, for example, you get into the waiting room and the waiting room all have uh, single chairs. Maybe they have arms on them, but they're not uh, designed to handle somebody who might weigh 400 pounds, for example, or even over 300 pounds. So um, that'd be one example of things that make doctor's offices anxiety provoking for people who struggle with this um, terrible problem. Another example of that are 
uh, is when people get on uh, a scale and the upper limit of the scale is exceeded by their body weight. For example, they weigh 375 and the scale goes up to 350. Um, that's a, a an embarrassing uh, thing and, and folks who really struggle with this uh, don't need any more uh, reasons to be embarrassed uh, by this problem. So, and finally, the well, there's a couple other things. One is if your scale isn't hidden away, let's say in a, its own room, like an intake room or something, and others uh, might be able to look at that scale when the patient is standing on it, that's a very embarrassing thing. So I would encourage uh, doctors to try to put their scale inside of, scales inside of an exam room or into a specialized intake room and not just in the hallway uh, where others might be passing by. Um, there's uh, cultural stuff. Uh, again, throwaway magazines, I call them throwaway, like uh, Shape or Men's Health or uh, things like that, where you have these ridiculous um, people who have 0% body fat or very low body fat, really. Let's not be extreme. It's 5 6% for men, you know, or, or really low uh, body fat for women, 20% uh, or less because they're supermodels. That's what they do professionally. So, you know, fitness buffs and all that. So having that stuff sitting around doesn't exactly uh, inspire a lot of uh, confidence. So we tend to not do that so much as well. Uh, number two is actually taking a history. This is really important, actually. Um, actually, let me go to let me go to my own 1.5. 1.5 is doctors focusing too much on the patient's weight when that's not their primary concern. Um, and that is to say, it's very off-putting, excuse me, very off-putting for a lot of folks uh, when they come in for uh, one complaint and uh, the doctor spends any significant amount of time um, focused on their weight. They might not, might not even be harping on the patient, um, but the patient isn't really there for that. They know they have this problem, just like a smoker knows he or she smokes, but if they're not there for help quitting smoking, they don't need you to tell them they need to quit smoking because everybody knows they need to quit smoking. And people with significant weight problems know they need to lose weight. So uh, for doctors to just harp on that when it's not the patient's primary concern um, is something I try to steer away from. Of course, if they're there for a complaint that's obviously connected to their weight, I'll make reference to that. Um, and see where that where that goes. Uh, but if a patient isn't primarily concerned about it, I don't spend a lot of energy trying to get them to do something different because if they were really ready to make a change, uh, they'd come in for that, particularly in our practice where medical weight loss is our one of our major focuses. So, so on from 1.5 to number two, when you do talk to a patient about their uh, weight issue, it's important that you really um, take a history about this. We, um, in the medical profession, have been a little bit um, undereducated about obesity and uh, how it works and the fact that it is truly a chronic disease that's self-perpetuating. Uh, and so we sometimes are a little trite with our uh, statements. You know, if you just uh, did a little physical activity and ate a little less, maybe you would lose some weight and you'd feel better and so forth. Um, <clears throat> but before we go down any kind of 
just like any other medical diagnosis, before you go down any significant um, or insignificant pathway to talk to a patient about their weight, it's really important to kind of get a sense of the history uh, that the patient has uh, with their weight issue. Um, there's a lot of folks who have actually been very successful in losing weight. And while they're still uh, significantly affected by obesity, they might be 50 or 100 pounds lighter than they used to be already. <laughs> Excuse me. Uh, so uh, it's important, number one, uh, to know that they've already done something major, if that's the case, and congratulate them for that and recognize that this is that's really significant and maybe more weight loss just isn't uh, realistic for them or something they want to spend a lot of time on at this point. Uh, a lot of folks who have serious weight problems have a history of some kind of psychosocial or psychological or physical or sexual trauma. Uh, so it's important to be sensitive to that. Um, and I don't um, go after that in too much detail typically other than to ask, sometimes our patients who struggle with obesity have had a significant trauma in their lives. And um, is that possible? Could that possibly have happened to you in the past? And I don't, it's kind of a yes or no question. They don't have to go into any detail, but it might be a little helpful to know there might be some post-traumatic stress disorder uh, or other uh, significant uh, psychological slash psychiatric issues uh, going on there and at least be, be uh, aware of that fact. Um, again, if it's not their primary concern, it's, I don't, I'll, you know, jump into, I'm going to refer you for counseling or therapy or uh EMDR or something for for that, but it's it's good for us to be aware of, and it builds trust with the patient. Um, if you even are uh, sensitive enough to kind of ask that question in a non-judgmental way, that doesn't require them to give you a lot of detail, but um, kind of normalizes it uh, for the patient. Because in people with, particularly people with body mass index over forty or what we call class three obesity. Um, and the old terminology, <clears throat> which we all hate, but it was called morbid obesity. Um, the higher the the higher the body mass index, the more likely they've got some significant trauma in their past. It's good to think about uh, and be sensitive to. Some people have have a history of uh, anorexia nervosa, bulimia nervosa, uh, binge eating disorder, body dysmorphia, other things that. Um, are significant psychological issues that may need to be addressed uh, as well. Some people are just not in a position, they talk about social determinants of health, some people are just not in a position where focusing energy on losing weight is, is a thing for them. They've got enough going on at home or uh, just lost a job or they have no money. I mean, this is like the last thing they care to focus on. So. Um, but if they are interested in losing weight, it's important to kind of know what resources they have available um, and be sensitive. Again, just sensitive to those things. Um, the sensitivity, again, builds trust and the trust will get uh, get you a long way in the doctor-patient relationship. And every physician knows this. Um, uh, number three is um, pushing don't push useless diet advice. This one's simple for me to say because I've known this for a long, long time. Uh, but the medical community tends to have this 
um, idea that sending somebody to a dietitian is a really uh, kind of the approach for dealing with somebody with obesity or, um, you know, eat more, eat less, move more, that kind of thing. Um, but that really doesn't give them any any help. Um, uh, this, doc, this Dr. Yoni Friedhoff, who authors this uh, column uh, from um, University of Ottawa, uh, says that's kind of like telling somebody who wants to make money that they need to buy low and sell high. It really is um, kind of useless advice. And uh, so and it sounds trite and it does not build trust, certainly. Um, number four, he has listed as pushing specific diet advice. <clears throat> For example, uh, intermittent keto, low carb, vegan, low fat, whatever. Um, uh, doctors tend to have an idea of what they think might work best. Um, I certainly do. I will admit I have a huge bias towards uh, low carb uh, and if you can get low enough carb ketogenic uh, type of uh, dietary approach, I'll talk more about this, uh, but <clears throat> do what will work for your patient, what your patient is willing to do. Um, if you do have a conversation with them about that and then offer them follow-up just like you would with diabetes or high blood pressure. Um, maybe you wanna get some baseline labs, give them some sense of uh, where they're starting from, uh, from a metabolic standpoint. Um, but basically, whatever you do, recommend, um, just like any other chronic medical condition, it would be behoove you to um, let the patient know that you're interested in following up and seeing if they're having success. And if they're not, um, then let's change course. Now, having said that, going back to the low-carb uh, idea, um, it seems to me pretty clear that the thing that makes has made us... Um, so riddled with obesity in our society is not that people are eating too much uh, bacon or steak or eggs or something else that's traditionally kind of been uh, vilified by the low-fat diet crowd. Uh, the thing that really has exploded in our uh, situation over the past 40 years is the, our consumption of carbohydrate, particularly processed carbs. So, um, 40 years ago or so when the low-fat diet uh, kind of came out and was um, foisted on us uh, as from the government all the way down, uh, basically low-fat ex is expressed as a percentage. So if you keep the percentage of your fat down by increasing the amount of carbohydrate you consume, um, then you're eating a low-fat diet. But basically we eat several hundred more calories a day of uh, sugar and starch than we did 40 years ago, and the obesity epidemic really started about then. So I think it's pretty clear that excess carbohydrate in the diet is the thing uh, that's driving uh, obesity. And I think uh, if we're honest, most diets that work actually work because they are in some way actually lowering the amount of uh, carbohydrate that we consume. So uh, therefore, uh, over the long term, if we want to fix this problem, I think we really have to focus on uh, lowering carbohydrate consumption, no matter what we call that diet that works. But um, uh, it's relatively easy to do long term compared to something like uh, going vegan or low fat, uh, because uh, it's 
it allows people to eat some of those things that are very satiating for them, like uh, that ribeye or uh, hamburger or or bacon or whatever. Pick your pick your meat that people like. Um, so number five, <clears throat> refusing to prescribe medications for weight loss. I think um, this one's important. I think number eight is actually uh, equally important uh, or more a first step, which is don't prescribe drugs that you know are going to cause weight gain if you can avoid that. Uh, those types of things might be certain antidepressants, um, certain blood pressure medications. Uh, we all know that um, certain antipsychotics can cause weight gain in a terrible fashion. Uh, some of these are hard to avoid. Uh, but some of them really are not. Metoprolol is the classic example from my experience. Uh, it crosses the blood-brain barrier, can slow down your mental energy, lead to depression, certainly can cause weight gain. And there are other beta blockers out there that do not uh, cross the blood-brain barrier, like bisoprolol, uh, for example, uh, carbidolol. So when you can avoid using drugs that cause weight gain, we certainly should. And if, if we can't avoid them, then we should address that right out of the box as well, that this is going to be your really high risk for significant weight gain that's going to cause other health problems. And we should really address that up front. Um, back to number five, refusing to prescribe medications for weight loss. Um, the author doesn't really talk about what those drugs are, although he does list that he is a, um, a uh, in some association with Novo Nordisk, who are the uh, producers of things like Wegovy and um, uh, Ozempic and uh, even I think Victoza are all Novo Nordisk drugs. And those are good drugs. They're just expensive as um, can be right now. And so for $1,000 a month or $1,200 a month, depending on what your insurance pays or what kind of deals are cooked up. Somebody's shelling out lots of money for those. And if it's coming out of your own pocket, that's almost cost prohibitive for almost everybody, uh, except Hollywood types, I guess. So there are drugs that work well. They've been around for a long time. Uh, some of these are, are Phentermine, uh, which has been around for 63 or 64 years. We use uh, that um, right out of the box for most folks who join our program. They're coming to our program because they really want aggressive approach to weight loss. Uh, and that's 10 or $15 a month uh, generally. It's very safe. It's been around a long, long time. Uh, it's a controlled drug still, but I think it's safer than Tylenol, honestly. So uh, we tend to use a fair amount of that for people who are interested in losing weight. Each state has, several states have some specific guidelines around that or rules. So if you're a physician or practitioner considering using Phentermine, uh, or some of its uh, compatriots like diethylpropione or fen uh, fendimetrazine, uh, you want to be familiar with what your state has as far as rules around that. Um, <clears throat> I happen to be in Wisconsin, and Wisconsin is uh, has a really old thing they call the amphetamine rule, uh, which is something we pay attention to, attention to and have actually kind of built our practice around. So uh, it doesn't have to be prohibitive, but it's something you want to pay attention to. So uh, lots of patients there are in zip codes around my area in Eau Claire, Wisconsin. Uh, there are adult obesity rates as high as 62%. Um, the 
American average adult obesity rate is about 42%. So very few areas in the country where there isn't just a huge problem with this. So to we don't refuse people blood pressure treatment, blood pressure drugs, uh, when we see them for high blood pressure, um, they may not be ready to make lifestyle changes. And even so, we'll still put them on a blood pressure drug because we want to get their blood pressure down. Um, and if somebody's concerned about their weight and they need some help using something <clears throat> that's um, got evidence to back it up is a great idea. Fentramine's been around so long, there's not a lot of recent evidence done in the, quote, evidence-based medicine, unquote, literature, uh, because no drug company is going to make money on it by doing that study. So it's there's, it's kind of limited, but it's been around for, again, 65 years, and there are it's been written as a prescription hundreds of millions of times uh, for weight loss and can be very helpful. Um, Fear-mongering around medications. This is uh, talking about some of the new medications, for example. Some people, doctors may have biases about, you know, I don't really want to use that. Um, that drug or this drug uh, to help you lose weight because it's number one, it might be new and we don't really know much about it yet, uh, even though it may have been on the market for for a number of years. Uh, or in the case of fentramine, it gets um, uh, demonized in some ways because it is a stimulant, a little bit like Ritalin and, um, and therefore is a scheduled drug and and they like people like to think that it's not safe and it causes high blood pressure and heart problems, or maybe it's addictive and none of those is true. Um, so if you're a physician thinking about this, I think it'd be a really great idea to uh, kind of look into some of those things and recognize that there are can be really huge benefits to your patients and at least allow them to make um, a shared decision with you about whether or not you use certain medications. Another thing I've seen, this is number seven on the list, is physicians or health practitioners, healthcare practitioners will stop a weight loss drug as soon as somebody gets to their goal. Um, and the patients fear that and they don't, it's like the, that's the thing that helped them get there. And, and they're likely hoping that the, this will be the thing that helps them stay there. And just like um, with blood pressure, we don't stop blood pressure drugs just because we got somebody's blood pressure under control or diabetes drugs because their diabetes is controlled. We continue to use what they need to keep those things under control. And the same thing should be said of uh, weight issues. Now, don't I, I, from the outset, will have conversations with people about, uh, we'll use whatever we need to that's legal, ethical, safe, and so on uh, to help you keep your weight under control for as long as, as you would like us to help you with that. Um, it's just another medical problem. Um, number nine, we talked about number eight, that is don't prescribe drugs that cause weight if you can, weight gain if you can help it. Number nine is be careful what you're setting for um, weight loss goals, uh, right? Some people may have already lost 10% of their body weight and it may, it's not realistic for everybody to expect to lose all their excess body fat. We have patients in our medical weight loss program that do accomplish that uh, remarkably. Um, most of them aren't starting in the class three obesity or more uh, group, uh, but occasionally we'll get people who do really, really, really well uh, in that group also. Um, but we have a body composition analyzer 
uh, that will give the patients a number and say, here's how much excess body fat you have. And the first thing we'll tell people is this doesn't mean you have to lose all this, but it gives you a sense of perspective. Um, some people think they can lose, they want to lose 100 pounds, but they've only got 70 pounds of excess body fat and the rest is really just skeletal muscle. Uh, so they're, they have, even if they wanted to lose all 100 pounds, they would, that would be an unrealistic goal. So you got to be careful with that. Um, with a good uh, diet, uh, people can lose 10% of their weight or more. Uh, if you add medication, that number statistically goes up to be 15 or 20%. You go to a bariatric surgery like a sleeve or gastric bypass, you know, you might see um, 30% or more. The surgeons will report that differently. They'll say percent of excess body weight loss gets it a little confusing. Um, we'll, we, at our practice, look at it both ways so we can have the conversation both ways. Um, but the point is 10% body weight loss could be a really great result and result in incredible um, health improvements and allow people to get off of medications and so on. So just be realistic going in and, and help your patient to have uh, some some re reality around that. It's very tough to lose every last bit of your excess body fat. Uh, and then finally, number 10, be sure you discuss all the options with patients, right? No matter what your kind of bias is, um, we don't uh, hold out on patients for blood pressure treatments or diabetes treatments. Um, we might talk about a number of them and say this might be first line or second line and so forth. Uh, but you want to kind of give people the sense of hope that, gee, if this doesn't work for me, there are other options, right? Because otherwise people kind of think, oh, if this doesn't work, I'm just done. And, and it can be kind of some all or none thinking around on that. So you want to be sure to have those conversations. And some people, you know, with the body mass index over 40 or 35 with comorbidities and so forth, um, might decide to jump right to surgery because they know that's going to be their best option. And uh, if you don't have that conversation with them, um, they they may think you don't believe in it or you wouldn't refer them or some other thing. It's just good to put that out there. So uh, knowing that there are options gives people a sense of control. It gives them a sense of hope, like, oh, if this doesn't work, I can do this other thing. Um, and also maybe gives them something to steer away from uh, in the sense of, gee, I don't want to have surgery. So let me, I'm going to give this a really good try uh, and try to change their lifestyle in some other fashion. It is good. In summary, it is good that the, uh, the landscape of medicine is changing. Doctors are more and more recognizing that obesity is a problem that really needs to be looked at seriously. And as we see the the rate of growth of obesity in the adult population, I think has maybe slowed down a little, but the rate of growth in kids is, is uh, still significant. And we're approaching, I think, close to 20% of our pediatric population uh, having serious weight problems, and that uh, spells all kinds of disasters for the future, not only uh, health disasters, but um, due to the obesity directly, but infertility problems, um, healthcare costs, and so forth, all of the fatty liver disease, transplants, I mean, it just goes on and on for uh, teenagers to have type 2 diabetes with fatty liver disease is that's just a horrific place to be. And so we want to prevent those kids uh, from ever having a, that, that health problem occur, which is why I am an advocate of low-carb diet because um, kids aren't getting overweight because they're eating too many eggs in the morning. 
it's the chips or the soda pop or, or the macaroni and cheese or uh, whatever it is is kind of built into the American you know childhood diet. And if we as adults don't get right familiar with what that problem really is, um, our kids are going to suffer and and generations are going to suffer because the costs of that's going to be just astronomical. Um, and we want our kids healthy, obviously. So, um, so that's it on 10 dot ways doctors sabotage their patients' weight loss. Uh, and most of those are not intentionally sabotaging. I should say that it's just the way we're trained. And so uh, if you think a little differently as a physician or healthcare practitioner about obesity as a health problem, uh, I think a lot of these can go away, but most of it is just uh, awareness and sensitivity. And um, give your patients hope. Give them information. They'll make good decisions. Uh, they just need to be, to be focused on it. And don't badger them. If they're not ready to lose weight, don't focus there. There's some other reason they came in to see you. Take care of that. Okay, that's going to do it for Dr. Usher Ways in today. Thank you for tuning in. We appreciate that. We'll look forward to seeing you on another podcast.